It's time for Series 3 of Shooting the Breeze. As we continue our focus on women's basketball, we'll be talking to more of the amazing players in the WNBL, the coaches that inspire them, those people behind the scenes that do so much for the sport, as well as so many more from across the Australian women's basketball landscape and beyond. It's the 42nd WNBL season, the longest-running women's professional league in the country, and this year, 2022, Sydney will stage the FIBA Women's World Cup, featuring the 12 best women's teams on the planet, playing right here on our turf. There's so much to come in this season. Subscribe, like, and review our podcast so we can get more Hoops content to you. We want to welcome on board the Island Pacific Soap Company as our first commercial partner. They make high-quality, all-natural, handcrafted bath soap. Check them out online, and a big shout-out to Paul for all the support. New Zealand hoops are going through a major transformation, and we're really grateful to have Auckland Dream General Manager Bevan Murray give us a rare insight into the changes for NZ Hoops and the future those changes are going to bring. When we recorded the podcast, a shortlist based on expressions of interest for establishing a new team in the revamped five-team league were close to being decided, and final decisions are due any day now. It's an exciting time for NZ Hoops, and these changes will have effects on Aussie women's hoops as well. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today, we're joined from over the other side of the pond by Bevan Murray. We're going to hear all about women's hoops in New Zealand. Now, Bevan is the general manager of the Auckland Dream. And he's got a really great insight for us into what's happening in basketball in New Zealand, particularly women's basketball, and all the changes that are coming up. Bevan, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. I'm not allowed to fly over there at the moment, so I guess this is the next best thing. That sounds fine with us. We can't go and visit as a pond either, so maybe if we talk prospectively now about the league, hopefully in a year's time we'll be over there watching it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so just starting it off, I suppose the thing that really surprised me is that given you are our closest neighbours, we really don't get to hear very much about basketball in New Zealand. Uh, The news is really scarce. So maybe if we could get a bit of a landscape so that the listeners can get an idea of what's happening in New Zealand in basketball as a starting point, then we can get in all the other really interesting stuff that you guys have got going on. Yeah, so basketball, to talk in, in general terms, basketball in New Zealand is is a bit of a juggernaut at the moment. It's the fastest growing sport in New Zealand secondary schools. Um, so I think at the last sports census, it was the second biggest played sport in New Zealand high schools. And I think if you did that census again today, I'm sure those results will probably come out soon. It's probably overtaken everything else. Um, so it, it really is um, growing at a phenomenal rate. In some parts of the game, we're struggling to sort of keep up with that. We're struggling to have enough coaches and venues to play at. We don't have a big club structure like Australia, so having dedicated basketball venues is not really a thing. They're shared venues, so space can be an issue when you've got this huge growth. So especially in the, in the male game, it's just taken off. There's a variety of things that lead to that. Obviously, I think with a lot of the contact sports that New Zealanders and Australians love, there's some issues around concussion and things like that that are are sort of 
maybe driving parents to push their kids towards basketball a little bit more. Basketball's always great because you train and play indoors most of the time, you know, for your organized basketball. Um, so that's always a positive. And then, of course, there's all the cultural things that go with basketball. So the NBA, of course, is huge over here. The culture, the hip-hop culture, the, the clothing and stuff. So, yeah, for males and females, I think that's been a, a big draw card with the, the influence that social media has uh, on today's culture. So basketball really is taking off. Looking at women's hoops, I mean, obviously we get a lot of, of really top-class New Zealand players over in the WNBL. What sort of pathways does New Zealand have and what's been happening in, in terms of organised competition in New Zealand for women's basketball? The women's competition here hasn't really found a, a consistent structure. So the, the structure of the competition has varied from year to year. So the men's New Zealand NBL has been going for over 40 years and it's been pretty much the same structure the whole time. The number of teams has varied. Um, they're just in an expansion process at the moment. New team named um, for 2024, I think. But the women's competition has really varied from year to year. It hasn't really found a sustainable structure. As we probably will talk about shortly, um, there's a new revamped women's NBL yeah. to start in 2022. And hopefully that will address that and have something that will stick around like the men's competition has I just ask quickly, just to a recap yeah. for our own benefit and our listeners uh, as well, just give us a quick recap about what the Women's uh, National League in New Zealand was like before these proposed changes. Sure. So previously, the women's competition's only been called the NBL for the last two years, and both those years have been heavily COVID-affected. So 2021, we only got a week of our competition before we went into lockdown, so no real competition and in 2020 because of lockdown they they went to a single venue competition so all the teams traveled to Auckland to play the six tier one women's teams and then in 2021 um, it was the same they played at the same venue expanded it a little bit but again it wasn't a, a true league it was all played at one venue so prior to 2020 uh, the league was called the WBC, the Women's Basketball Championship. And historically, that was played as tournament weekends. So the women's teams would travel to a single city and play a number of games. Then there might be a break of um, maybe three weeks or four weeks. Then all the teams would travel to another city, play a few games. And th this was totally amateur. And in some cases, women had to pay to play in, in those teams. They might have had to contribute towards airfares or accommodation or whatever. So totally amateur competition. After the 2017 season, the teams got together with Basketball New Zealand and said, hey, we need something that better respects the women's game. And they came up with a tiered system. So they, they had eight tier one women's teams and then a like a second division, a tier two uh, competition as well. And the rules around the tier one competition, which you had to bid to to be one of those teams was that the it had to be fully funded. The woman couldn't pay to play. So that was kind of that that 2018 was kind of the start of of heading towards some kind of semi-professional league. In 2019, we had the first true home and away league 
and that ended up in a, a pretty epic final um, between our Auckland Dream uh, woman and Harbour Breeze. So two Harbour Breeze is a historically extremely strong basketball association and have had really strong programs. I think in that game from between the two teams in the grand final, there was 14 either current or former Tall Ferns. So it was talked about as one of the, the sort of best domestic women's games we've ever seen in New Zealand. And the game sort of lived up to the hype, uh, went to extra time. Dream came back from a 15-point uh, deficit in the last quarter to take it to extra time and, and were lucky enough to win. So that, that was kind of the foundation for what we thought was going to turn into something really great. And then the pandemic came. And so we had those two seasons where uh, we couldn't really have a legitimate competition because of lockdown and and uh, the restrictions. Okay. There's obviously been a lot of evolution going on. And all of a sudden, particularly in the last, I don't know, month or so, really the announcements have come out. You guys have had pretty much a revolution. We've read through all the all the material, but I'd love to hear your opinion on exactly what's gone on now and how this is going to try and hopefully propel women's basketball forward in New Zealand. Yeah, it can only be described as a revolution, I think, because, you know, as a general manager of one of the teams, none of us really saw this coming. We didn't know it was in the wind. Um, we had a GM's meeting about a month ago and this was un- unveiled to us and I think generally everyone was really excited by it but there's challenges with that obviously the time frame is extremely tight so we had a two-week period between the EOI documentation coming out and that being due in um, and then out of those EOIs, uh, there's 10 bids gone through to the next stage, to the formal bid stage. So we've received a whole lot more documentation. Um, and then those bids have to be in uh, on January the 14th. So, wow, over Christmas. Yeah, over Christmas, trying to find investors, trying to find sponsors to include in your bid. Yeah, so really interesting times. And so just to clarify for people listening, that your the EOI you're uh, referring to, is that to uh, for you as the Auckland club uh, expressing interest in being a part owner of the one of the new teams for the new league? Yeah, so it's a bit different. So to kind of give it a, a New Zealand-centric model, um, over here the rugby franchises are regionally based. So they're not city-based, they're not Auckland something or Canterbury something. They're just the Hurricanes or the Crusaders or um, whoever. And that's kind of the model that they're looking at for this new women's league. So five teams regionally spaced throughout New Zealand. So there won't be an Auckland Dream. There won't be a Harbour Breeze or a Otago Gold Rush. There'll be totally new teams. And the identities of those teams will be done by the NBL's marketing company. So once you win, you're bidding for a franchise in a particular region. So for us, we're bidding for a franchise in the northern region, which is probably just south of Auckland and north. Um, And then there's a mid-north and a central. So those are the three North Island and then um, two in the South Island. So, yeah, we're bidding for a regional franchise. And, yeah, basically our identities will be gone. Um, and we'll be given new identities if we're successful in getting one of those franchises. It sounds really interesting, but you're going to have 
fans who are going to be not so thrilled, I would assume, that the team that they've followed for whatever period of time or played for or supported isn't there anymore. When they were processing and, and coming up with the EOI and the, the idea for the new league, what sort of consideration was given to that? I can't really answer that, Paul, because we don't really know the answers to that. We weren't really consulted on that. Uh, we were just, this new competition was unveiled. So I think the, the geographical spread of the teams is probably the most controversial part of it. I think there's general support for the salaries, the increased promotion and marketing of the women's game. You know, yep. Every every game's going to be live on Sky Sport. That's amazing. A true home and away season. There's some really good things. The fact that they're trying to get the girls that are based in Australia, the Kiwi girls that are based over there that you mentioned before, that trying to get them back playing domestically, trying to tie it in with the international game and our tall ferns. Those are all really positive things and, and a big step up. Um, but the geographic spread is probably the, the most controversial. And I think probably where we are in Auckland, that's probably the region where um, with two really strong organisations and a third of the population of the country in, in the Auckland region, the fact that we're going to be going down to one team here, that's probably the most controversial part. It surprises me a little bit because, as I said, you know, you're going to have fans and some fans are going to get disappointed. It's a little bit reminiscent of the days when, and now I'm showing my age, back when the two Sydney basketball teams combined to create the Sydney Kings. There was, hey, there's a whole new team, but there were these two teams that people supported that weren't didn't exist anymore. And for a little while, there was a little bit of resistance, but you know that ended up fading. I think the net positives outweigh that as a negative. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me when I was looking through the EOI that I found online was in relation to the way that they're structuring the, the league and particularly the way they're going to structure the payments to the players. Yeah, that's that's also um, interesting. The fact that the, the franchises don't have to contribute to the salaries at all. So it, it's a set salary cap. So every team will be on exactly the same cap um, and every team will spend the whole cap because it's a TED payment system. So your top-ranked player in, in your team will, will get the top amount and the second player will get the second most and, it, and it's down like that, down to 10 played players and then the other five players on your rosters will be amateurs. And I did notice on the EOI as well um, when it came to purchasing your part in one of the new teams, I noticed that only... If there were existing club associations that were interested in ownership, uh, that one club could only own a maximum of third and two clubs combined a maximum of only 40% of that. Do you have any understanding as to why that was set? I think this is basically lessons learned from the Australian situation. So I know, I know historically the Australian pro teams were association-based and... You know, now those WNBL teams are, you know, generally privately owned um, organisations. What I understand is that it's felt that while you're tied to an association, the kind of the focus is on still being quite community minded and that may hold organisations back in terms of marketing and those areas. You know, if you're really association based, you feel like your commitment to the community 
has to be your foremost concern and that in terms of a pro sports team that maybe holds those organizations back. So they've definitely pushed to get more private ownership into the teams by limiting that association ownership. And there will be, I know there's bids that have no association ownership component at all, and then some that will have partial association involvement. I guess as well, like when you compare it with the WNBL and the history of like you were talking about club ownership versus private ownership, it might be an initial measure to help protect the clubs financially in a way where I guess helping prevent any kind of overcommitment or financial burden. Because I know, you know, based on what I've been told, I mean, any listeners or uh, either of you, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I know when Logan basketball had a WNBL team and that was only afloat for a few years. And from what I heard, it kind of put the junior club association and their semi-pro teams quite under the financial strain, which is Mm. why the WNBL club wasn't around for very long. Yeah, that same scenario has been true over here, Jacinta, with uh, men's teams in the past. So there is, you know, there's cases of men's NBL teams basically bankrupting their associations and even teams that haven't been. Auckland especially has had so many different men's teams over the years that, you know, they haven't been financially sustainable. They've been in the competition for one year or two years or three years and then they've you know they've gone broke and in some cases left some pretty sour sort of trails behind them Mm. Um, so I think this model is a does mitigate the risk hugely with the the way the salary components are structured you know that's the one area that you can really get into trouble with private sports franchises is overspending to try and win the competition overspending on players and that this kind of takes that risk out so I'm assuming from that comment that the salary cap is a hard cap? It's a hard cap. So everyone will spend exactly the same to the dollar. It's also a, you know, a, a competitive balance system as well, I guess, because everyone's spending the same money. Yeah. I mean, look, the reality is when you have a soft cap and, say, a luxury tax on the top of it, it's open to somebody who's got deep enough pockets to say, I actually don't care how much I spend so long as I come home with the chocolates correct yeah and it sounds like just based on what i've read from what you kindly provided bevan it sounds like they want to start with a clean slate of we're going to start you know with five regions we're going to start and if we're going to start it from the beginning again we're going to make it as fair as possible in a sense of salaries and hard caps so it sounds like they want to try and do it right and do it right by the players as well by providing uh, i think i did read in one of the documents by at least trying to provide a source of financial stability for the players for that eight weeks so they can just focus on being athletes and not have to juggle athlete life and working full-time too. That's right, yeah. And because of the basketball calendar the way it is, I think over here we would struggle to compete with WNBL salaries. So if we want our Tall Ferns girls back playing domestically, we have to dodge that window. And so the window that they've seen basically is NBL1. And so that, that's who we're competing at with for contracts. Um, and I guess they're looking at the salaries having to be competitive with NBL1 salaries and, and hopefully that can attract our Kiwi girls back. And it makes yeah. a bit more sense to me too why they've put on the four weeks of Tall Ferns camp and responsibility at the end too. That sounds pretty attractive as well. Yeah, I, I really like that, Jacinta. I think. Um, 
that that's going to also help draw those tall ferns back to play in the league because it'll be an easy transition from the end of our season into the tall ferns games and then still with enough time to get back and get your prep in for WNBL if you're playing in that so yeah I like that aspect basically our league will finish about the same time as the NBL one finishes I think it's you know like you've both said the idea of being able to do the tall ferns pretty much straight after I think also gives New Zealand the opportunity to be able to build a stronger national team. Because I think one of the issues that probably New Zealand's had is that your really top flight players that would be pretty much a lock for international competition tend to be spread out in other areas, giving the tall ferns less opportunity to be able to train together to get that game time to be able to even though the players individually may be able to match up with others from overseas, you just don't have the ability to gel together as a team. That's right, yeah. And the, the Tall Ferns tour earlier this year, which was a Fever Asia qualifiers, exactly that. They just didn't have any time together. And so, you know, you saw it when they started playing games, how much better they got with each game. And you think, man, if you had a little bit of preparation, how good could you have been? Yeah, for sure. And you still had some really great performances from the Tall Ferns at that tournament too, like Panina Davis and Mary Golding as well. And yeah, yeah, like you said, just a shame they couldn't spend more time together to see how far they could have gone. Yep, that's the challenge. So a couple of the other interesting points that came out of this for me was, as you said, all the games are going to be shown on Sky Sport, which is obviously it's great for the game, but also you've got a strong competition naming rights sponsor in Sal's Pizzas. You've obviously got a really good working relationship between these both these organisations and women's basketball in New Zealand. Any idea that has been passed on to you guys about what's the longer term, or not even longer term, just the medium term plan? Do they see potential to just consolidate or is there a growth plan as well? I think there's definitely a growth plan. We were interested and why? Because we'd already we've had six teams in the competition for the last three years. Why they went for five? I, I'm guessing, but I think it's um, likely just to consolidate with this, trying to keep the salaries high. I think if you went with six, that's going to dilute the salary pool a little bit and maybe dilute the quality of the games a little bit. And so maybe that's why they've gone for five teams in this initial period. I'm certain they will look to expand, whether that's in two years' time or three years' time or whenever. Yeah, I'm certain there will be expansion plans. Um, and we might hear a little bit more about that once the uh, the new franchises have been selected and then they uh, start talking about the longer-term strategy. It does. Um, the story does have a few parallels for me. Um, I'm not too sure how much you're keeping up with the NBL1 landscape over here, Bevan, which is, you know, replace Seaball as a semi-professional league in Australia. But recently NBL1 announced NBL1 East. So all of the New South Wales teams will now be NBL1 and not Waratah. But some of the issues, uh, I shouldn't say issues, but some of the concerns that I had early on, me being from New South Wales, having played in the league, with the financial commitment a lot of clubs would have to provide to be a part of NBL1 East, especially with COVID and things like that. And it just read to me that perhaps it was expanding a little bit too quickly for New South Wales, mm. considering we don't have that strong foundation and financial stability of our clubs compared to, say, Victoria. In my mind, I was like, maybe NBL1 East would be better just being a few clubs first 
and let the other clubs then build up what you know their foundation before entering as well so when i read five regions i actually <laughs> me being me my initial response was like that's very sensible <laughs> yeah so there are positives i think about restricting the numbers yeah for me that the big one is just that huge auckland populace and mm. uh, the strengths of the teams here some people might have to move to other regions to play for the other teams yeah and it will be interesting to see how that plays out Jacinta. um and, you know, with the men, they don't really mind. They'll, you know, pick up sticks and they'll move wherever they're to play. But the women's game's a little bit different, have different responsibilities often. It will be really interesting to see if if uh, some of those women players are, are willing to just move to the other end of the country for a two two-month season. I'm really interested to see how that plays out. I guess that's just part of the part of the transition to being a proper semi-pro league. Mm, bit of a double-edged sword. I'm curious that, you know, and again, my New Zealand geography is okay, but are any of the regions big enough in terms of, you know, population size to support having a couple of teams within a region if that sort of expansion plan is in play? Well, Auckland certainly is. They have the player numbers. They, you know, they have the just the general population. Obviously, it's our biggest city. There's there's the greatest amount of commercial uh, structure here so in terms of sponsorship and that area it's probably equipped to have two teams I don't think there's another city in the country that would be able to have two teams for quite some time but definitely there's other regions there are regions sort of between Wellington at the bottom of the North Island and Auckland is a, is a very big area and it's got some quite strong associations in that area but yeah, it's, it, there's been no teams there. We sort of there's a big gap between Waikato, which is just south of Auckland, and then Wellington at the bottom of the North Island. Mm. And put so, and take. Oh, you go, Paul. No, no, you go. That's fine. Oh no, I was just going to say taking the five regional teams on the road because I also read that they won't strictly have a home ground. It will be shared between different venues across that region. It sounds like perhaps they're going to, you know, taking it on the road will hopefully help further expose the women's basketball across the regions and maybe foster some more growth in the sport. What do you think about that, Bevan? Yeah, well, I think that's you've hit it on the head in terms of what they're trying to achieve with the playing around the region. It's a bit different for a, a pro sports model to not be, you know, camped at your home venue and serving your local crowd and building that fan base. Uh, so that's another interesting aspect. Again, with the games being on Sky Sport, it'll be interesting too because some of the the cities that you might want to take a game to, whether they have venues that are set up to host a, a television quality game. So that will be interesting how that pans out. Um, somewhere like Auckland, we're pretty well served for good-sized stadiums and stadiums that have regular television sports events at, but some of the other regions not so. So that'll be interesting too. Just touching on that, because earlier on you said that from in some regions that having you know permanent basketball facilities isn't necessarily something that, that's there. Is there enough multi-purpose facilities in these regions to be able to support the teams to be able to do play and also to have the games televised? I think most of the regions, um, even the provincial towns, they have at least one venue. There's been a lot of uh, money spent in the regions on having these big multi-sport venues now. So most of them will have one that could host a, a television quality game. Yeah, most of the bigger provincial towns or, or cities. 
So thinking about this, what I'm seeing is there's a whole bunch of pieces of the puzzle being put together here to strengthen the women's game in New Zealand, to strengthen the national team in New Zealand. You've also said that there is a significant growth in the popularity of basketball. In secondary schools especially is really interesting um, because the accepted wisdom is you've got to get the kids at primary school because that's where they select their sport. Whereas what you seem to be saying is that in New Zealand, that it's different. People are, are moving across to basketball. Popularity is higher in secondary. Is this really a concerted push by basketball in New Zealand to really grow the sport, like as you said earlier, to make it into one of those really powerhouse sports in New Zealand? I mean, I doubt you're ever going to ditch rugby. <laughs> Though as a Wallabies <laughs> fan, you know, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's just what it seems like. Yeah, definitely. Basketball has kind of suffered from the high performance sport uh, funding model in New Zealand has never really worked well for basketball. The formula for funding has always sort of been medal based. So you really needed to achieve at the World Cup or at the Olympic level. And basketball being such a huge global sport and New Zealand a little speck at the bottom of the world, you know, you're out there playing against those giants. And even though we've got this huge growth and a huge need for some some resource to handle that growth, the funding model didn't really work for basketball. And what's happened recently is there's been a change in how they work out the formula for who gets funding. And they're taking into account things like growth and numbers playing in uh, schools. And basketball has finally been a beneficiary of that. So we've just had announced a, I think, $3.3 million injection into basketball high performance, which will feed the Tall Ferns and Tall Blacks programs. And that's huge. So we're talking 10 times what they've had previously. Wow. So that will really help the top end of the game, the, the elite level, and that'll help the things like Jacinta talked about earlier with preparation for international tours or FIBA events. Um, that's really going to make a huge difference there. And it's long overdue, but it's here now and, and let's enjoy it. But Basketball New Zealand's also looking at, um, like you mentioned, Paul, the the young ones, and they've recently introduced a program called the Strengthen and Adapt program that has a whole range of areas to address, but they've put a lot of resource into getting into schools and getting especially young girls engaged in the game at a young age before they hook on to other sports or engage it in basketball as well as other sports. And so that will take a little while to bear fruit, but I think that's a game changer in terms of long-term growth. Uh, especially in the women's game. I said, you know, about it being a bit of a juggernaut with the growth, but the female game is not growing nearly as fast as the male game. And so Basketball New Zealand's putting a lot of effort into trying to get the women catching up to the growth like the men. So where I work, which is in uh, South Auckland, they've recently put three new strengthen and adapt staff into that area and they will just be out in the communities, out in the schools, engaging with youth and getting them introduced to the game. And that that's going to be a huge, huge results in the next three, four, five years, I think. What about netball? I know it's an easy comparison to make, but that was on my mind too, Paul. 
I mean, you know, Australia-New Zealand is one of the great netball competitions. How's this kind of fitting in in that landscape as well? Because there's obviously competition for the player pool. Yeah, exactly. And kind of there's a lot of girls in New Zealand. It's kind of the Kiwi way that you play multiple sports. And a lot of our really good basketballers are also really good netballers. And that's kind of been like that for a long time. I think the the track that we're taking is there's still room to be able to play both those sports up until a certain age. But like I talked about with the Strength and Adapt program, it's really trying to get those young girls hooked on the game of basketball before they find their favourite sport, I guess. Netball's still massive here. In terms of females, still the biggest sport by a huge margin. And we don't need to take over netball. We don't need to beat netball. We just need to get a little bit of that pie. And once we do, it'll translate into great things for women's basketball. We often have the debate on our um, episodes about investing in grassroots versus investing in uh, national teams. And we've definitely touched on both of them. And maybe in this instance, if you invest more in your national team with that new funding you spoke about, and the, the national team can perhaps have a more opportunity to reach their further potential and boost their profile. That might help at the grassroots ends of having more girls enter basketball because I can see how, I, I, think, I mean, you can even see it here, uh, you know, rugby league is the, the crown and glory of Australian sport and all the boys want to grow up and play rugby league because that's, you know, the thing that people idolise, unfortunately, uh, in brackets. And so I can see perhaps maybe that was a situation in any kind of basketball landscape. If the national team is successful, then maybe it would attract more people to play. Yeah, very true, Jacinda. I think, and that combined with what you just talked about with the national team and that combined maybe with the new women's NBL, just having that aspirational aspect and having those young girls see that on TV or from the stands and say, hey, I want to do that. You know, I want to, I want to be one of those, one of those players when I get older. So I think that, and that's something with Auckland Dream that we've really been big on is, you know, we we only formed in late 2017 and that was one of the reasons we set it up was just to have that aspirational aspect in our region for girls. There wasn't sort of anything for them to aim for. They knew about the sport, but they, they didn't have those role models, those heroes, you know, regularly in front of them. That was, you know, a big part of why we set up the dream was to create that aspirational aspect. And like you say, if we can have that at Tall Ferns level and have that at the NBL with this revamped league, then hopefully that can hook some more girls into playing the the game we love. Sometimes uh, kids and their parents don't know that that's even an option unless it's presented to them. Because I even know people uh, here on the Central Coast where I grew up and live um, and people would ask me where I play and I would say, oh, you know, just at the, the stadium at Terrigal, assuming everyone knows that there's a, a stadium at Terrigal and they're like, oh, whereabouts is the stadium? I didn't know it was there. So it's not like, if it's not part of their world, if it's not presented as an option of, you know, you can go play basketball 15 minutes from your house, then yeah, how are people to know to get involved? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and the other, if you're talking about the netball v basketball debate, um, especially for girls, the the pathways in basketball are amazing, right? The countries you go to with basketball on the international game, the US college pathways, I think, is something we really don't we don't promote enough. I mean, you can't with netball, you're really limited. Even if you get to the top level, around you know, we play it amongst a few countries. 
there's nothing like the US college pathway and go to America and get an amazing free education and some awesome life experience and see another part of the world. And I know there's so many Australians, um, men and women in, in the US college system and, and the New Zealand numbers are just growing and growing as well. We have more girls over there than boys now. Lots of D1 players doing great things. So that's some area I really think basketball could uh, make hay with is uh, promoting that college pathway and the international game. Yeah, because you've got, with basketball, obviously, you've also got the ability to go and play in Europe, whereas while netball's played in a lot of countries, that really top-flight level of competition is pretty much limited to New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Yeah. Um, Everywhere else, it's kind of like a step down in terms of tier. And even though there's a push to get the game included in the Olympics, I'm not sure how soon it's going to happen because you're going to have to have a reasonably strong men's competition to be able to have fair representation to the Olympic rules. So I think there's an opportunity for basketball, but you're right, there's that whole selling the pathways and the opportunities, but there's also the ability to be able to capitalise on the cultural links that basketball has that maybe netball doesn't have as strongly yeah I agree I think there's just there's just so many more pathways in in the game of basketball and I think we just need to do a better job of promoting that and showing people that that exists I I think there's another area that we haven't touched on that could generate massive growth and that's the 3x3 game I think that's just starting to just starting to grow. New Zealand's starting to do a little bit more here with uh, 3x3 tournaments. We have some big national tournaments now, and I know the the national teams are going to start coming over to Australia to play some tournaments there in 2022. Um, So I think that's really exciting. And I think um, across all levels of the game, 3x3 could be amazing from, you know, young kids trying the game for the first time where you just, you have your hands on the ball all the time and there's lots of space and you get to <laughs> display the full range of skills. And I think it's just, I just think it has so much potential for people to play the game a different way and just fall in love with it. That's a real light bulb moment when you explained it that way. So if you think you go to your uh, under 10s kind of local comp, and it's a bunch of kids playing for the first time. And, you know, in any kind of kids' sport for the first time, every, they're all a magnet to the ball and there is no spacing. And there's just too many options if you're the one with the ball. Who do I pass it to? Do I pass it to my best friend? Do I pass it to that person who's actually open under the basket? Now I'm going to pass to my friend because that's my friend and I want to pass the ball. The exactly. 3x3, <laughs> when you say it that way in terms of more time with the ball, more time being productive and feel like you're actually playing and the space, it actually sounds like a really good stepping stone for young people. For primary school age kids especially, or I guess then probably any level that someone is learning to play basketball to have a crack at 3x3 first. Um, yeah. We've had a bit of a split between some of our previous podcast guests on whether 3x3 is, whether they like it or not. But uh, in terms of what we quickly to have touched on as well in terms of resources and facilities to play sport 3x3 in places that have limited resources and facilities for for basketball 3x3 is way more suitable yeah and I think even in terms of spectators 3x3 is probably a form of the game where you can know nothing about basketball and watch it and enjoy it Mm. um 
and definitely the national 3x3 tournaments that we've managed to have here around outside of lockdowns uh, have been like that. They've been a real sort of party atmosphere where, you know, corporate tables and things like that and people come in families and they might not have ever watched basketball before, but you can just go there and have a good night and really enjoy yourself. And it's a bit like going to the, you know, the darts, you know, that kind of atmosphere. Um, it's just a good night out. Um, and I, I think that's another area for growth. It's, it reminds me of 2020 cricket. Some of my friends will only go to 2020 cricket. It's a chunk of cricket. It's a fun atmosphere. It's big hits. And then you go home. That's it. Great night out. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, you got to look at those things. You've got to look at the marketability. And um, if that's if that's what brings the money in and allows you to do other things in the game, then you've got to do it. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the things that interests me on some of the stuff you've touched on is you're saying lots of people who don't necessarily know basketball will come to 3x3. But once you've gotten through the door, how do you educate people to what they're seeing? Because, I mean, 3x3 is fast. If you don't really know the rules, based off people that I've spoken to, they find it really confusing. I think that's the big step. If you can find some way to make it really easy for them to understand what's happening on that half court, you're going to hook them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I don't know the answer to that, Paul, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, maybe that's the challenges. I just think there's huge potential in the 3x3 game um, right across the board from beginners to the top level. You know, there's there's pro tournaments in, across Europe all the time now. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's just another pathway. It's another way of hooking kids into the game. It's another way of engaging sponsors and team owners to jump on board. Yeah, heaps of potential there. Yeah, and, and there's an Olympic pathway there too. Correct, yes. Very good point. You know, so from this conversation, from what I've read in the materials that I've seen so far, it sounds to me like, as we said, there is a real revolution happening in women's basketball. I'm really, really interested in seeing how this is going to pan out. I really want to be able to keep an eye on what happens in that first season. How do we here in Australia find out how we can watch this first season of your new competition? Because I'm really excited about watching it. Yeah, I want to watch it. Yeah, I think that there's – so even our last couple of seasons with our COVID-disrupted seasons and our kind of 18-day window to play a full season and things, they've still had global live streaming opportunities. So the league's been pretty good on that. They even had it on ESPN in America and stuff like that. I had an American girl that I was looking at bringing over as an import and they ended up closing the borders so she couldn't come. And this was just for our five-on-five season. And then she had seen our, um, she'd actually seen our 3x3 competition on ESPN in America. And she said, when is that on? Because I want to come and play on that. I saw it on TV and I want to come and play on that. We don't have anything like that here. And so here was, you know, someone from America, the home of basketball, saw this 3x3 competition at the bottom of the uh, South Island in New Zealand that had been... um, (laughs) that had been shown on ESPN, and she was like, that looks so fun, I want to come and play in it. To answer your question, Paul, um, I think it, there will be um, opportunities to watch it from outside New Zealand via live stream. Okay. And if there isn't, we should be giving uh, New Zealand basketball a bit of a hurry up on that, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> surely surely if Sky's going to air all the games, we can get some partnership between Sky and Fox or someone 
Hopefully. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, I know. I know a lot of our listeners would actually want to watch it too. Yeah. I mean, us women's basketball tragic over here, we watch WNBL and, you know, we watch NBL1. If, uh, if we know someone in the team, you know, we always try and get on the live streams and, and watch those games. So I'm sure it's the same over there. You know, if you're, if you're a women's basketball fan, you want to watch it. 100%. And, and we might even have some Australian imports in our competition. I reckon is... you have a, quite a bit of interest, to be honest. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Two months it... in New Zealand, why not? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, two months in New Zealand in a window, like if you're not selected to play in Europe or to play in the US, there's a great opportunity to get international exposure without having to go too far. i tell you another area I think it might attract some girls that have played NBL1 is if you're, you know, I know a few players that they, they play in Europe and then they might come back and play NBL1 and then they play WNBL and they literally their bodies are not getting a break. And I think it's a real opportunity to that because I think their salaries on some levels will compete with NBL one, even though ours is a two month season and NBL one's like what five months. Yeah. Um, so they might really use that three month as an opportunity to rest their bodies and do a bit of uh, rehabbing, then play the shorter season but get close to the same money, and then be ready to go with wherever else they're playing after that. So I think that's another area where it might attract players here. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, you're selling it to me. I'm convinced. I always am more about working uh, smarter and not harder. And uh, you're right because, especially inside or outside of COVID, the nature of pro sport is back to back to back to back seasons with the traveling and being away from home and things like that. So having a shorter season with the same amount of financial stability, in a sense, and rest time. That sounds very. I reckon that will be quite attractive to a lot of people. And I'm pretty certain that some NBL1 clubs, depending on who the player is, you can kind of negotiate that you only play NBL1 for a club for this amount of weeks for this amount of money. So yeah. you can play around with that and, yeah, maybe do a stint in NBL1 and then play the New Zealand comp. But it just means you get to live in New Zealand for two months. Like Exactly, right? Yeah. And you, you come, Why wouldn't you, you want to do that? Come a month <laughs> early and do a bit of touring around and see the country and, yeah, why not? I'll come I'll send and carry you, someone's I'll bag. Send your contract, I'll send your contract over. <laughs> Thank you. As long as you don't expect me to play, uh, you can send me a contract for any other kind of responsibility, <laughs> bag carrying, heights person. I don't know. I'll, I'll be a mascot. A mascot in a suit. I've always wanted to be a mascot. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely do that for two months. Hundred percent. It's a deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're we're definitely there. Look, Bevan. I really want to thank you for your time. This has been really interesting. I mean, I'm sure we're both going to be keeping an eye on how this develops over time. This is probably one of the most exciting developments in women's basketball that I've heard of for quite some time. And it's a really smart approach from what I'm seeing from the outside. And it's got a lot of potential in terms of what it can do for New Zealand basketball longer term. Yeah, I think it's exciting too. Would have loved a little bit more time to prepare my franchise bid but I think um, hopefully we're successful and the pain's worth it and we'll get on with playing some ball and and uh, do some cool things mm-hmm. sounds awesome yeah. okay Bevan again thanks for your time it's been great having you as a guest on the show we're definitely going to keep up on this one I don't know how we're going to do it but we would really like to get some regular check-ins from New Zealand because I reckon this is going to be 
a really big thing for you guys. And I think it's going to really excite some of the players that we've got here to be able to come and play in New Zealand because I think it's going to be a real opportunity for them. Yeah, cool. No, it's my pleasure to come on, Paul. And if we're not successful in getting a franchise, I'll have lots of spare time on my hands. So I might be able to give you some um, some regular updates. Okay, that'd be great. <laughs> Jacinta, always great having you uh, joining me on the show. And we'll be keeping an eye on this one. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.